0: to swana region radio swana region radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of south and west asia and northern africa my name is ankini antaram here with fellow collective member and co-host rana sharif and we welcome you to our show this afternoon our shows can be found in the archives at kpfk.org as well as wherever you get your podcasts just search swana region radio
1: Today, our show is dedicated to the plight of refugees all around the Swana region and beyond. On this World Refugee Day, we will speak with two founding members of the Critical Refugee Studies to better understand what it means to be a refugee in an ever-changing world. According to UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, June 20 is a day that has been marked to, quote, celebrate the strength and courage of people who have been forced to flee their home country to escape conflict or persecution. World Refugee Day, excuse me, World Refugee Day, World Refugee Day is an occasion to build empathy and understanding for the plight and to recognize their resilience in rebuilding their lives. On this day, we celebrate the strength, steadfastness, and bravery of our refugee communities near and far. This day is significant in that it shines a light on the rights, needs, and dreams of refugees, helping to mobilize political will and resources so refugees can not only survive, but also thrive. This again is from the UNHCR. While it is important to protect and improve the lives of refugees every single day, International days like World Refugee Day helped to focus global attention on the plight of those fleeing conflict or persecution. World Refugee Day was initiated in 1951, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. It was originally known as Africa Refugee Day before the United Nations General Assembly officially designated it as an international day in December 2000.
0: Today, we have the honor and privilege to speak to co-founders of Critical Refugee Studies, Professors Yen Lee Espiritu and Laila Sharif. Yen Lee Espiritu is originally from Vietnam and is a distinguished professor and former chair of the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of California, San Diego. An award-winning author, she has published widely on Asian American pan-ethnicity, gender and migration, and U.S. colonialism and wars in Asia. Her most recent book is Body Counts the Vietnam War and Militarized Refugees. Her current research examines the possibilities of solidarity among refugees from the Global South and about intertwined yet differing political histories and historical trauma. She is a founding member of the Critical Refugee Studies Collective. Laila Sharif is Assistant Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and affiliated faculty for the Department of Sociology, the Center for South Asian and Middle East Studies, and the Unit for Criticism and Interpretive Theory. Her collective work is concerned with bridging indigenous studies and critical refugee studies into conversation through a transnational feminist lens. Focus on indigenous lands in Palestine, her homeland and the process of decolonization, her book in progress, Olive, explores what place based knowledge and the colonial guide does the Olive reveal for Palestinians. She is a founding member of the Critical Refugee Studies Collective and is co editor of the Critical Refugee Studies book series. Welcome to the Scholar Circle, Professors Laila Sharif and Yen Li Spiritu
1: just want to take a moment and as a personal welcome to both Leila and Yan. Leila is my sister. I have the great honor of calling her my sister. And Yan is just a formidable force that is we are just so honored to have you both so welcome.
0: Professor Yan, I would like to start with you. Can you provide an overview of the complexities of who and what refugees are? has this changed over time and if so, why? Uh,
2: what is your definition of refugee
0: and how does it differ from the status quo definition?
2: Hello, everyone. First, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to be in the same space and sharing in this conversation with um, Layla, whom I adore and have worked with for many years, um, and Arena, who is Brenda, who's her sister, whom I also have gotten an opportunity to know, and am super excited to to meet a new friend, um, and Kina. Um, so the, the first I just want to say that the, um, we are at a moment of renegotiating what it means to be a refugee and the official definition of refugee, which Rena mentioned a bit earlier, um, which was uh, stipulated by the 1951 convention relating to the protection of ref- refugees, um, even though it remains the international standard for the granting of refugee status, it has become so inadequate. And this definition, in short, um, defines refugees as those who are fleeing for fear and persecution. And in order to be defined as a refugee, you have to cross an international border. Um, So um, that definition has become increasingly irrelevant to today's crisis and to the conditions and characteristics of refugees they produce. So just wanna take us some examples One is that while the UN considers repatriation to be one of the quote-unquote durable uh, solutions to mass displacement, it does not take into consideration the fact that for communities such as Palestinians, which Leila will speak more about, um, whose homeland is erased by settler colonialism and militarized occupation. Um, Second, um, we now have a crisis of climate refugees. So when, for example, when we think about Pacific Islander uh, climate refugees displaced by rising seawater, the idea of return is fraught or even impossible. Um, At present, the term climate refugee does not even exist in international law. Um, uh, A third example is the existing refugee, refugee law does not account for instances in which the decision to flee is compelled, not by specific fear, which is what you have to prove in order to gain asylum or refugee status, but rather by just ongoing systemic oppression and the daily assault on people's lives. So rather than focusing on the question of fear, the critical refugee studies collective focuses on the idea of livability as what Defines um, a refugee condition, and lastly, it's just the the, I, the um, existence of the number of internally displaced folks um, because the convention, the 1951 Convention, does um, only links refugee status to a very narrow definition of fear, um, but also to the precondition of cross-border flights. Unless you cross the border, you're not uh, considered refugee. Um, so this. Uh, emphasis on the nation-state framework um, lies rights with citizenship and national borders. When in fact, we know that many nation states do not care for the people who are within the na- within their own border, and it also erases the displaced folks who are internal, who who remain internal to the um, boundaries of the nation state, and many of whom. Um, remain internal because they, they couldn't, they didn't have the possibility of leaving. Yeah, so those are just some of the ways in which the, uh, the official international definition of refugee is not capacious enough to address all of the complexities of current refugee populations. Thank you so much, Yan, for offering that really comprehensive, the, really tracing the
1: inadequacies of what we have to kind of articulate who and what a refugee is. Um, Leila, I um, would like to ask you to follow up perhaps on this particular moment, this shifting moment that allows for the possibilities of new definitions to emerge.
3: Thank you so much, first of all, for having me. Um, It's a a pleasure to be in your company and to um, be here, especially with Yen, who has been um, such an incredible mentor to me. And one of the things that we have been sort of discussing as the Critical Refugee Studies Collective is how do we redefine a refugee uh, on our own terms based on the experiences of those who have been displaced, ourselves, our families. And we've come up with a definition that we feel is more expansive than the sort of legal definitions that actually do a lot of harm, especially in the Palestinian case, So when we think about the refugee, we are referring to human beings who have been forcibly displaced within or outside of their land of origin as a result of persecution, conflict, war, conquest, settler colonialism, militarism, occupation, empire, and as Yan mentioned, environmental and climate related disasters, regardless of the legal status. Uh, Refugees can actually be uh, self-identified because sometimes they are not legible within international law um, and are often unrecognized within these limitations. Um, And that is an intervention that we are trying to make as a collective in
0: our work. On your website, criticalrefugeestudies.com, you say something very interesting that a billion dollar professional field for rescue has been created. And I was quoting that. Tell us how it is created and sustained. One of the reasons you give is how refugees are portrayed, generally, and by the media. And that portrayal elsewhere you say is, includes dehumanization and objectification.
2: Yen, would you like to start? One of the key interventions that the collective wants to make is how to move away from media representations that we argue freeze frame refugees in time and space, um, and in, in many ways um, prolonging their pain and, and agony and perpetuity. You know, so I'm referring to the images that you see, um, not you know often as a stock image of suffering and there's some random body, Um, which should always be named and honored. Um, So this visual images of refugees suffering in Western media, uh, often the dead, wounded, or starving, um, we argue constitute generically contextualized horrors that elicit at best uh, pity and sympathy, but never, or seldom serious analysis of the geopolitical conditions that produce that displacement in the first place. So we argue that these images evoke um, um, ideas of, you know, uh, um, uh, helplessness or, and then trying to elicit uh, humanitarian assistance, um, but it doesn't address the conditions that produce the displacement or the hard conditions to begin with. And so one of the uh, key tenants of our uh, work is to always ask what are the desires and not only the needs of the forcibly displaced as they create and they always create improvised um, and and alternative homemaking healing strategies. Um, So how do we not only focus on the injuries but also the survival practices and um, and how they play out in the domain of the everyday. Um, so um, if you uh, go on our website, which we want to plug critical refugee studies website, criticalrefugeestudy.com, uh, we have multiple ways um, through which we um, are attentive to the texture of the everyday, um, to small stories, to complex personhood, to the way that refugees, like all human beings, are you know, play act in a very self-aware way. Um, So we have uh, on our website um, uh, stories, artwork, uh, videos that refugees have produced themselves. Um, We also have uh, blogs that, you know, um, that refugees produce um, and also literature and um, uh, and bibliography that, that allows people to understand in a much more expanded way um, refugee life. So I'll stop there and, and let Leila, um, and Leila's work is uh, really exemplifies this kind of uh, life-making practices. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your work, Leila. Before you respond, Leila, let me remind our listeners
0: you are listening to Suwana Region Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM, and we are discussing a new approach, a reconceptualization of refugees with Professors Yen Espertos and Laila Sharif. I am Ankina Antaram, and my co host is Rana Sharif. Laila, you've been prompted.
3: So, absolutely, uh, what uh, Yen is saying that the, the images of refugees as being helpless and uh, awaiting. Western intervention and American heroism in particular is something that we critique and these images are, as Ian said, abound of refugee suffering. Another aspect to that is the ways in which some refugee suffering is completely illegible. So for example, in the case of Palestine, uh, the Uh, Which is a unique case in that it is the largest refugee population, but more, more, even more. seriously a a protracted refugee population in the sense that Palestinians are actively denied the right of return, which is the root of Palestinian displacement and has been so since 1948. So this issue um, is very complex in some ways because you never really see Palestinian suffering as a result of Israeli settler colonialism because the U.S. finances it. So ultimately this particular form of refugee suffering is made illegible uh, because it does very little to enhance U.S. self-identification as being the um, heroic intervener um, and savior, as in the case of, of Vietnam and other uh, specific other kind of cases. Um, instead, we see that there are there are $3.8 billion annually go to uh, continue the, um, the refugee suffering, the, the, the displacement, I should say, of Palestinians. Um, so the, what my work Uh, Tries to do then is to, rather than fix Palestinians in a state of despair, um, to show instead how Palestinians make home in everyday acts of life. And I'm especially interested in food preparation and harvesting uh, and other kinds of practices in which Palestinians reconnect with home, even if through their imagination. And again, this is a very specific example because Palestinians are actively denied their uh, return to a home so and oftentimes the only thing they know about their home um, is stories about food and practices of cooking. Um, in Palestinian refugee camps in places like Lebanon they'll rename the uh, places where their camps are located to their villages of origin as a way to recreate home where they are. So these are the kinds of ways that we look to life making uh, and and how that varies because refugees are also not monolithic, right? They're very diverse and we have many experiences um, and relationships to home and experiences uh, with respect to U.S. empire.
0: Well, the media is criticized for not covering refugees or any kind of crisis in the world enough. And you are uh, sort of criticizing for covering the covering the suffering too much. So is the real issue then the hyper coverage of certain aspects of refugees, that it's hyper focused?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's accurate to say. Um, and it's uh, the, uh, the issue representation um, it, the problem with the issue of representation crosses different groups. So um, it's often the case that like other groups, refugees are invisible um, until you know something occurs and then they become hyper-visible. So the question for us is always to think about under what conditions certain groups become visible, what, what kind of ideological work does that do? And what you know, what, under what conditions, as Leila reminds us, that the suffering becomes invisible um, to the world. So it's both, what are the conditions that lead to invisibility and when they are hyper-visible, what is the ideological work that is being conveyed?
1: Thank you for that again. Um, Leila, would you like to elaborate or add anything else? Uh, Thank you for that, because I do think it's interesting because the kind of hypervisibility is instrumentalized in particular ways. Um, And that in and of itself does not necessarily center any life affirming ways of existing. And one of the things that I want to underscore that Leila does in her own work and the critical refugee studies work does, too, which is exhibited um, as someone who does work in new media and visual culture is you have a part that's called story maps and the archives. And Yen, you had alluded to this, it's because the ways in which you redefine not just what refugee is, but also the ways in which those stories are being accounted for. Um, And I think that that's really important to to capture. So actually, I'd like us to take a step back perhaps, and if we could speak a little bit about the genesis of the critical refugee studies as a field, and what were some of the conversations among the folks that were in um, part of this, um, that are part of the collective, how what were those conversations like, what, the framing, the beginnings and how is such an intervention um, extremely necessary, both practically, intellectually and politically? So if you could speak to the different dimensions of intervention as well, that would be very helpful.
2: So I'm from Vietnam originally, and uh, even though I've been in ethnic studies for a long time, I never really uh, published any work on refugees. And I think it is because um, being in, that I was trained in sociology, I did not see a way to approach refugees in a, in a way that makes sense to me, and that to me, that, that would be productive. And by that, I mean that the the field of refugee studies in the social sciences has primarily been about refugees as a problem for the state. So, um, so the questions would usually take the form of well how do we resettle them, what do we do with them, how do we minimize that disruption to the school system, to politics and so on. So all of the questions about refugees come from the perspective of the state and they are about how to manage refugees. So, The idea of of, uh, containment is often how refugee studies is couched in. And so it wasn't until the Iraq war um, that I began to think about refugees differently. And, um, and I was already uh, an assistant professor at the time, or, or I don't know when, I was already in my career. Um, and I was watching, and then I, I saw, so I make the connection that, the, you, know, that you, can, you see like bombings from the top, and, but you never see what happens on the ground. And so this kind of, um, this lens, you know, to U.S. wars uh, uh, in other countries um, reminded me, reminded me of what must have happened during the Vietnam War. Um, I was younger at the time. And, And then I realized also being in San Diego, San Diego has, is one of the largest refugee resettlement um, areas. And I, I saw that Iraqi refugees were coming. And so, uh, you know, so very organically, I make the connection between what I eventually come to call um, the connection between militarization and migration. And so it was through this kin story. This is how I think about, you know, um, stories about other communities that allow me to see. Um, something about my own uh, family and community. So the story from a kin community from the Iraqi refugees allowed me to then wait, I know now how to tell the refugee story, which is to to talk about it in relation to militarism and migration. So in um, U.S. scholarship, m- militarism and migration are often placed in two different disciplines. So you have military studies, which is about how to win wars, you know, and how to, um, you know, what well would the strategy tactics and generals and so on, very masculinist. And then you have the refugee studies, as I share with you, which is about, oh, the refugees are here, we don't know why but now we have to deal with this problem. So, you know, that's this ingenuous question of like, we don't know why they're here um, is what I really want to address. And so bringing together the fields of militarism and migration and to say, you do know why they are here, you know, and so reviving the phrase that, you know, that originated in Europe that we are here because you were there. Um, So for me, so that was both a personal intellectual connection to why I began to think about refugee studies in a critical way.
1: Leila, would you like to add to um, Jan's um, discussion of the genesis of how you as a scholar activist, um, our own family story and how that brought you to critical refugee studies?
3: Sure. So I also was... um, really uninterested and bored by many of the conversations happening around refugees and displaced people. They seemed inadequate to really tell our story, Rana, about how we got here. I began a research project in which I wanted to talk to refugees about their experiences. And for a period, I worked with an NGO in San Diego. At the time, more and more Iraqi refugees were coming as a result of this most recent war in Iraq. And I started to work with them, especially Palestinians that had been twice displaced, first from Palestine as a result of the 1948 Nekbe, and then had, found themselves in Iraq. And um, as a result of the war on terror, found themselves in the United States in San Diego. So I was working with these communities and to one of the questions that I wanted to ask was the question about their displacement. And I would ask them and in doing so, they were reliving a, a, a trauma that was not post an ongoing trauma of being displaced from their homes. And this was something very akin to my own family story where, um, you know, the question is often about, well, you must be assimilated by now because you have language acquisition, right? Or um, you have uh, at this point been, you're, you're a second generation or first generation American or, you know, as, as as the designations are, but seeing that these kinds of labels are very inadequate to tell a very, um, a a, a different kind of story and that story being that um, displacement is something that is embodied in every aspect of our living and to but there is also a love story that is attached to every aspect of where of our living, which is we love where we come from. We love our homeland. Uh, we love the way it smells. We l- miss the soil in Palestine. Uh, we, we love the rituals and we recreate them as much as we can in our yards and in our, our kitchens and in our gatherings. And so because of this, it seemed like I needed to changed the the project, and this is really something that came very organically from conversations with Yen, um, laughter, tears, and everything in between, and we would just try to find language to discuss our experiences on our own terms. Um, It was amazing to be involved in a collective where everyone was on board to do this kind of work. It was a new kind of work, and we were doing it collectively from various experiences, various relations to the U.S. state, uh, for example, or timelines. But ultimately, we really wanted to tell the love story of our homelands and not get frozen in a story of displacement and terror and violence that I think so often takes away from the the, um, amazingness of being who we are and the resilience and the strength and the steadfastness of who we are. And really that was the spirit of the collective. Um, We all kind of came together without having to explain that that was our motive but knowing very well that we were there to fill in a gap and we were going to do it together. And that's really the formation of the collective.
2: And I would say this, this field as we see it. If yeah, I could just add to that, sometimes it is that you don't know that you've missed something until you actually have it. I should say that we were first funded by the UCI um, Humanities Research Institute. Um, And then we were funded by um, the University of California President's Office. But I remember sitting around the table having, you know, again, one of those intellectual discussions that veer toward personal stories, which are also, of course, intellectual questions and and narratives. And just realized that um, I didn't know that I missed having a community of scholars who also come from refugee background, I didn't know how meaningful it would be to be able to talk about displacement or to talk about transnational families or to talk about the things that we miss, or the you know, about the things that we can't have. And, you know, and it's all the, you know, the ongoing trauma that um, some family members continue to experience, but also just on the funny stories about you know, being in displacement. Yeah, so I also want to say just like institutionally, it was so important for us to have this collective at that level as well Um, so that we we too as human beings uh, can also be nurtured by each other's stories and be uplifted by each other's vision of what it can be. Can I add to that? Yes, go ahead, Layla.
3: One of the sort of conceptual frameworks that we work with has been developed by Dr. Yanli Espiritu and Dr. Lan Duong at USC. And it's called the Feminist Refugee Epistemology. And a lot of people write and talk about feminism, but I feel that we actually do it in the way that we engage with one another. And the old adage that the personal is political. Um, it did feel as though us coming together to share these personal stories, we were on the verge of something cutting edge. And um, the the feminist emphasis on life making and the way that that organically happened through our own kind of finding uh, one another and creating a space to be refugees and connecting over our histories of displacement was a really important part of the way that we convened and continued to do our work.
0: You're listening to Suwana Region Radio, an independent and listener-sponsored KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming live on kpfk.org. I am Anki Navasian. My co-host is Rana Sharif, and we are discussing critical refugee studies with two of the co-founders of the field, Professors Yen de espiritus and Laila Sharif. We want to return to the gender question, but first I want to ask you, Laila, could you provide us with a snapshot of what it means to be a Palestinian refugee? Put it in context of what we are discussing. I come from Lebanon. The Palestinian refugee camps have been there for many decades, and there is no end in sight no resolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
3: Yes, and in Lebanon, it is a particularly dire case. So uh, I'm happy to share a sort of a snapshot, uh, but I must begin by saying that being a Palestinian refugee is not a monolithic experience. There is no single single sort of uh, moment um, that created, created all Palestinian refugees. But there's a series of ongoing events in the Palestinian historiography. And most notably, that is the 1948 Nekbe, where 750,000 Palestinians were displaced from over 500 indigenous Palestinian villages, mostly at gunpoint um, and their villages were depopulated, which means, or ethnically cleansed, um, which basically means that they were either killed as in the case of Der Yassin massacre, or they were displaced um, uh, through violent means and therefore um, unable to, to returned to their homes. Now that 750,000 has multiplied to now 5 million. But what's interesting is that in that 1948, that, that moment that we refer to in Arabic, Uh, as the Nekbe, which means the catastrophe, um, is really an ongoing catastrophe. So since the 1948 Nekbe, there have been a series of events such as the 1967 war um, that has continued an ongoing story of displacement for Palestinians, even though many of them may not necessarily have legal Uh, status as a refugee. My family's history is a post-1967 refugee story, for example, Um, but that in 1948, most of these uh, Palestinians were sort of placed in the refugee camps in frontline Arab countries. Uh, Most of them still, most Palestinians still live in these refugee camps. Um, And for Palestinians, they really believed that their situation in these refugee camps established by UNRWA were temporary. So they held on to the keys to their home, their stories about um, Israelis, or at the time they weren't Israelis, they were European Zionists coming into their home and still the food still being hot, right? So settling into to these Palestinian homes whereas Palestinians really believed that this was an impermanent status and they would eventually return. Now it's been seven decades and Palestinians have still not been granted the right of return, which is an international human right. And I mentioned earlier about how this creates an ongoingness to this displacement. Most Palestinians live and die outside of historic Palestine. So we are largely a refugee or displaced population, but the conditions are not monolithic. Uh, The most dire of conditions are of course in frontline Arab countries. Palestinians do not have citizenship except in Jordan. Jordan was the only country to grant Palestinian citizenship. Uh, Palestinians in Lebanon and in Syria, for example, um, have been um, um, living in very overcrowded conditions uh, where there's no infrastructure, no running water, um, no sewage. They're denied in Lebanon from certain kinds of professions. So there is also discrimination that is experienced. And this ongoing 10-year war in Syria has also led, is one example of multiple displacements. So Palestinians who were kicked out in 1948 ended up in Syria, and as a result of this recent war, have uh, become displaced elsewhere, sometimes to Greece or other places, if they make it, right? These are very deadly um, uh, traverses across uh, waters trying to find safety. Uh, Whereas in other cases, many Palestinian refugees have become citizens. So um, we can think about Palestinians residing in the United States that have US citizenship. For those of us who live in the United States, we actually can return, if we're not denied entry to Palestine and access Palestine in a way that a refugee in a frontline Arab country living in a refugee camp cannot because they have no bureaucratic identity and no state to claim them. Um, So again, there is a complexity in this Palestinian refugee experience, but what is really important to note is the ongoingness factor, and I can't stress this enough, um, that the denial of the right of return for Palestinians has made it impossible for a solution. Right? I think a lot of times the refugee narrative is that a refugee leaves as a result of a single war, um, comes into a, you know a Western country who saves them, and I'm using air quotes as I say this, and then resides there, assimilates, and then can have the option of returning home. But this is not the case. The sort of linear um, sort of story is not is an impossible Possibility for Palestinians and continues to be as a result.
0: And in Lebanon, uh, for the Palestinian refugees, it is not just a situation of living in camps permanently or perpetually, but also some of the camps were destroyed and thousands of people were killed during the war. Like Talazaka was intentionally bombed and destroyed, yes, and I'm exactly. sure a lot of people are dying also in um, Syria.
3: Absolutely. And we can also think of Sabra and Shatila, um, a very important part of Palestinian historiography where these camps were essentially massacred in the 1980s. So again, um, um, Ankine, you're pointing to the sort of ongoing nature, right? That we cannot pinpoint a singular event, but this is sort of constant. Um, And we can see it as recently as a week ago, Right. I mean, this is a sort of a, 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 and I'm time referring to Palestinians being displaced again from Sheikh Jarrah neighborhoods in Jerusalem. Um, many families are being displaced. We can also think about Gaza, where 80% of the population of Gaza are actually refugees that came from um, uh, what is now Israel and they had to uh, found themselves in the Gaza Strip and now living in containment. So again, not a monolithic experience, an ongoing one nonetheless, and the right of return has enhanced and promised more generations of refugees that are now in our seventh decade.
1: Thank you so much Leila for that and uh, we hope to actually have uh, Palestinian filmmaker Emily Jasser in the coming months to discuss her film on Tal and to kind of center and focus the ongoing um, displacements and I use that plural because it is time and time again so thank you so much for for um, pointing to that I'd like us to return now to the feminist uh, the inherently feminist epistemological project that is Critical critical refugee studies, and uh, perhaps we can begin by talking about how. Um, and y- y- um, you just heard, you talked about Lan Zhuang and Yan's work as really being formidable forces in actually creating and cultivating this feminist ethos around that is at the center around which this um, um, intellectual and political uh, projects um, revolves. And if we could speak about one, how uh, refugeehood is a gendered process, and how does that inform a kind of feminist epistemology and Leila to return to what you said in theory and practice through praxis. So oftentimes there are these discussions about feminist spaces, but they don't from an ontological standpoint really embody the characteristics of a feminist ethos. So if we could speak about the gendered implications of refugeehood, but also how has it informed the kind of cultivation of this space intellectually and politically?
3: To me, and I think this is something that uh, I am thinking through in my work, we're thinking about feminism as a practice, and as you said, as a praxis, Rana, um, theoretical, but also something that is a practiced. And I don't think in the Palestinian case, you have to look very far to see that there are everyday acts of survival. And I actually am trying to talk about survival, because I think survival is like we're barely barely making it, but there's actually joy embedded, right? So survival is a word that I like to use to describe that. We don't have to include that. (laughs) But um, uh, how folks that are displaced recreate um, or even return to the homeland even by virtue or, or th- through their imagination and everyday practices. So, I think about, for example, the olive tree as being one of the most significant material and symbolic icons of Palestinian life. And this is really why I have really decided to write an entire book about it. Uh, there are ways in which Palestinianness is embodied in uh, for those of us who live outside of the homeland. And it's uh, taught to us through practices that we often learn from the women in our communities. So some of them include how olive oil is used as a medicine. I'm a new mother and I was taught that when the baby has a uh, a stomach ache that you warm a little bit of olive oil and you give the baby a, 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 a massage, right on on her belly. Um. My mother-in-law recently came to visit me and she prayed on a little bit of olive oil and I've been using it for my new daughter, Iman. So these kinds of practices that sustain life materially, I'm not just talking about in the realm of the symbolic, um, are often gendered practices that are sometimes written off or less or made invisible because so often refugees and displacement Uh, or those who are concerned with refugees and displacement are really wanting the numbers or the statistics or the uh, num- number of dead or images of a young um, Syrian boy that is uh, dying on the coast or drowned on the coast of, of Europe, right? The the, the failures of, of making it and the, the sort of, of violence and those hyper-visible markers that uh, almost are used in order to try to get people to care. But in fact, Palestinians care about each other and we do so through practices that we often learn again from our mothers, our grandmothers, and they have sustained our life and our connection to our homeland. Um, I'm also really interested in food and I found that Palestinians have used food as a way to create alternative historiographies that would otherwise be invisible in dominant narratives about Palestine and Israel. So cookbooks like Palestine on a Plate or Zaytun that have emerged in the last decade or so, really tell the story of, first of all, our attachment to land, but also through rituals and practices and and food preparation, our connections to one another that have really sustained us. And these are the kinds of ways that um, gender is used, um, or not used, but gender is identified as a way of, conceptualizing life-making among Palestinian refugee and displaced communities.
2: Yeah, if I can just add to that a little bit, the um, how refugeehood is gendered. One of the reasons we, Lang Yun and I, wrote the piece on feminist refugee epistemology, which is published in Signs, a feminist journal, um, is that we were thinking about the freeze-framing of these images that I mentioned earlier, and we were thinking well what happens before and after the freeze frame image and that is what happens after someone has died like who does the care work of providing for the family to to keep going or if after someone is wounded you know who in the community Moves to take care of the wounded, or and or what happens before, and then so the ongoingness of refugee conditions um, requires gendered kind of labor, and so one of the ways in which the freeze framing of the you know spectacular aspects of refugee conditions, one of the ways that it neglects what it hides is the, the labor the gender labor that is required for refugee communities to continue to exist.
3: One last thing to add to that point, if I may, is that a lot of the ways in which refugee representation circulates is through gendered ideas of oppression. So one can think of the image of Sharbat Gula, for example, that circulated at the onset of the war on terror um, and other images that were basically, that were often used to mobilize uh, the U.S. and its allies to warfare in Afghanistan and in Iraq. So these sort of gendered images of needing to protect women and children um, is something that um, in my work, I try to respond to by showing a different kind of, you know, more subversive engagement with gender that is not, uh, you know, within that realm of oppression and justification for militarization, but is actually um, an expression of agency, an expression against militarization and against uh, warfare and intervention and settler colonialism. Uh, You know, so often Arab women and Muslim women are Uh, lumped into a category of being repressed and oppressed. And I think that 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 gendered representation makes a new need for us to identify gender in its sort of agentic ways and ways of um, sustaining
0: life again. Let me remind our listeners, you are listening to Suwana Region Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM, and we are discussing a new approach a reconceptualization of refugees with Professors Yen the and Laila Sharif. I am Ankina Ataram and my co-host is Rana Sharif.
1: Perhaps we can speak a little bit about empire and how empire factors in to the articulations because oftentimes, as you both mentioned, the images are service a certain utility of state power. So if you could speak a little bit more about the way in which empire is um, actually, being decentered in the critical work that you
2: are doing, much appreciated. I will need clarification on the question. So, so what how, do you mean? The the last part, I thought. So I, I just
1: wanted to know how mm-hmm. does empire factor into the reconceptualization of a critical refugee studies? Like, how is empire? Because oftentimes, empire um, is a top-down approach to utilize certain bodies for certain ends. So how are you engaging with this notion of empire in the work that you are doing?
2: Yeah, I can start and then you can see if this is what. It's. Yeah, I mean, I think on, on the one hand, we do want to implicate empire in the displacement because so often, as I say earlier, the refugees are, uh, are perceived to be a problem that comes out of nowhere. And um, so it is important to be able to link the displacement of refugees um, and, and their families uh, back to very concrete uh, actions um, by, you know, in, in this case, the US Empire. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, much what we also want to move away from is a discourse on refugee that privileges. This state driven approach, or like, you know, this empire driven approach, um, which at best will result in um, this idea of the humanitarian lens, refugees as objects of rescue. And I think a week or two ago, I was listening to um, a webinar and uh, Professor Nadera um, shauluk Kabokian, whom both of you have introduced me to. And one of the things that she says that we have to engage in epistemic and epistemological disobedience. And I really love that because she said, we have to change the fundamental vocabularies of how we talk about displacement. We have to refuse existing terms and terminologies. So for us, the challenge always is how do we Contextualize, historicize what we do without providing, you know, like a paradigm that gives so much power to the powerful, right? So, one of the key uh, practices that that we are engaged in as a collective that I'm really excited about is how to come up with new critical vocabularies to talk about refugee conditions. You know, just to give some examples. And then this you know, happened during one of those meetings and we were trying to do keywords in critical refugee studies. So Empire is one of them, but we just were just not motivated. <laughs> you know, like it's like, OK, we can do this. You know, we know this and we can write about this. And then we thought, well, what if we talk about water? What did we talk about the concept of waiting? You know, what did we talk about storytelling? Or what did we talk about food? You know, then everyone was animated and we were so excited to share. And I hope that I'm answering your question. But yeah, it's moving away from even, you know, a critical stance where we take account of power. How do we move away from centering that power? Because if we center power, then our proposals, as you know, uh, how we move from that will always revert back to how do we engage power. So we want to think about ways to move outside of that, um, of that sphere. And I want to bring back the the concept that I mentioned earlier at the beginning, the the concept of livability. So this is an example of thinking about refugee movement that doesn't, Uh, originate from state definition of a a refugee, right? So we want to say that being able to to not only live, but being able to have livable lives is what we want. And there is nowhere in any law that we know that that is inscribed. But unless we move outside of the constraints of the law, then we are never going to be able to imagine um, anything outside of those parameters. Leila, did you want to follow up? Sure. I think that the the
3: way that we engage with Empire is an interesting one because it sort of speaks to the different kinds of projects and writings that are coming out of the field of critical refugee studies. Yen and I are co-editing a, an issue of Amerasia Journal, in which um, many different folks are contributing, um, discussing various aspects that both critique empire, but also do what Yen says is to create something new, right? For a new vocabulary, a new way of knowing that really comes from refugees um, and displaced communities on our own terms. One of the ways it appears in my work is thinking about things like and this comes up in the issue things like the military industrial complex right and its relationship to empire expansion globally when we think about the most recent killings ag- against black youth that are totally captured using cell phones and other kinds of technologies and circulate and we know that these are linked to for example palestinian displacement right because they are both products of Israel's training, but also it shows that these refugee communities here in the U.S. have a lot to say alongside other communities in struggle. So this is also a new way of thinking about coalitions and community engagement that really connects the dots between different uh, people in in spite of our, our diverse, you know, experiences to empire, but how we are linked by these sort of, by way, power operates in our local and global communities, and we sort of come together and can form new ways of sustaining one another. So when I think of empire, I think of the prison industrial complex, I think of the military-industrial complex and how you know the global and the local connect. Um, in local communities like San Diego, like Chicago, as well as the ways that different communities have forged anti-imperial and decolonial uh, languages and forms of sustenance that exceed the, the state, as Yen said.
1: Thank you so much for that um, definition and kind of expansion on the concept of empire that's actually fruitful in ways that are for communities that are the most front-facing communities that actually have to contend with the violence of empire. And I really appreciate uh, Jan, you mentioning Doctora Nadira who was actually recently on our show talking precisely about the naming and nomenclature and language and the centrality of actually naming things in unique ways. And one of the ways in which she really asked us to be critical of things like occupation, right? To name, this is a genocide that is a settler colonial practice. And I think um, it is important to kind of then offset the, to destabilize the power of empire in very unique ways.
0: And in closing, how does this new approach change policies regarding refugees? How does it impact international refugee laws? And in practical terms, what does it mean when it comes to helping refugees? Uh, what kind of programs Should be created
3: we are very critical of this idea that the state is the arbiter of justice Uh, we know from history and from experience that that's not the case so our goal is not to get the right policies um, as much as it is for us to um, build forms of thriving and uh, in the face of great injustice and these are sort of ongoing conversations uh, that, you know, are, are, are uh, unlike many sort of academic projects. Yes, we do engage in critique, but we're also concerned with creativity and sort of, you know, as we've mentioned new ways of of languaging what is happening um, on our terms. Uh, but also creating new kinds of communities. And I think that we in the collective have done that in our sort of microcosm um, that didn't rely on, you know, um, the state, right? Or citizenship, or, um, you know, this, this notion that the uh, the state will save us, right? If the right actors know how to protect us, they will grant us that. Instead, we want to protect each other and create sort of a culture uh, and uh, uh, of of safety and of nurture and of sustenance that are not so um, wrapped up in policy nur Arakat has a, an excellent book out that is called justice for some and she highlights the ways that uh, you know, achieving justice by by through the, their legal means may be uh, you know available to some but it's really not the story for for everybody involved and instead we have been making communities um, of sustenance and nurture and I think that if we can start to con- we can continue to think about that creatively and f- forge these communities, through nurture, then we don't need the law because ultimately the protection of the private individual is a neoliberal project that does not protect our collective way of being, um, does not return us to our homes, does not make us safe from from militarization. Uh, So again, uh, and and also, you know, settler colonialism is itself a state sponsored form of violence. So, um, you know, we we are very critical of, of that approach. Um, However, we also recognize that there are immediate needs of communities. And so while we're very critical of agencies like UNRWA, we recognize that refugees deserve to survive, at the very least, that people need to survive in order to think creatively. And this is something that we are sort of um, thinking about. And I I think uh, I'm going to leave it there because um, I need to think more about that response. But
2: yeah, I agree. Um... Yeah, we do not uh, critique international immigration law and nation state inability to do better, right? So that we are not, um, yeah, we are not saying, we are not critiquing them in order to say that they, that, that there's an ability or capacity to do better. So what we hope to do is to unravel the laws incapacity. Um, so to underscore the refugees' capacious and creative ways to seek better conditions, which, are, you know, which are happening, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's one of the the projects that we are doing that my colleague Ma Vang um, is writing about is we're interested in the loss failure to account for, again, the term livability, um, you know, and to, we really want to focus on, on, displays people's insistence on a better life um, because they are human beings um, And um, I, I know that there's in some that people are beginning to use the term mobility instead of the term migration um, because migration the term migration only exists if we um, fortify this idea of, of the borders. But if we you know if we have a, a borderless, World, then we are talking about mobility. So sometimes I just tell my students to say, What is it that people are doing? They are just moving, you know, like they are in fact moving from one place to another for a better life for whomever. And I say, If this were your friend and your friend comes and tells you, Oh, I think, you know, in order for me to make a better living, I need to move to X place, you would encourage them because you love them. And that's all that it is, that people are moving for better conditions of livability. And yeah, so to think about this as mobility studies might be one way to move out of this, the solidity of, of the borders, which, you know, like nation state borders are in fact, settler colonial projects of maintaining um, illegally acquired land. And so, yeah, so far as to, uh, yeah, to, to uh, not, not, you um, act or react within the, the language of the law I think would be productive
0: and we need to end there Laila we would like to have you back when your book comes out our guests today have been Dr. Yen Le Espiritu and Dr. Laila Sharif thank you both for joining us
3: thank you for having us thank you
0: Yen Le Espiritu is distinguished professor and former chair of the Department of Ethics Studies at the University of California San Diego Laila Adib-Sharif is Assistant Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. For more information, go to criticalrefugeestudies.com. Our shows can be found in the archives at kpfk.org as well as wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Swana Region Radio. On behalf of the Swana Region Collective and my co-host Sharif, I am Ankine Antaram. <music>